Joshua chapter 8 this evening. The Old Testament is, contains what is referred to as typical history. It provides us as Christians with a, a very, very wonderful physical, um, historical uh, history of the events uh, surrounding the children of Israel and their physical conquest of uh, the promised land. But the Old Testament is intended to be more than just kind of a historical record for us of, of God's people. It is also known as typical history. And the idea is that everything that's recorded in the Old Testament is designed to give revelation or to enrich our understanding of New Testament truths. And someone has put it this way, the new, speaking of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. The Apostle Paul put it this way, writing to the church in Rome. He said, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so there's a very clear uh, progression that occurs concerning the children of Israel that very much lines up with the progression that occurs in our lives as Christians. Their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt is a picture of our salvation where God has done a greater thing than the shadow of their being brought out of the bondage of Egypt. God has done the greater thing in our lives of bringing us out of the bondage of sin, redeeming us out of this world. The crossing of the Red Sea, the parting of that Red Sea, a picture of water baptism for us as Christians. The 40 years of them wandering around in the wilderness is a picture of the Christian life or the Christian who fails to step out in faith in the promises of God or to obey the Word of God. And so the, uh, the Christian who will not obey God's Word is uh, going to kind of just go around in circles their whole life and they're not going to accomplish anything. They're just going to live a desert experience, a wilderness experience. Will they be fed and clothed by God? Absolutely. Are they saved? Absolutely. Are they way on their way to heaven? Absolutely. But they never accomplish anything for God. They never enter into the fullness of God's promises. And then as we've seen recently in the book of Joshua, the uh, crossing of the Jordan River, a picture of, of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the circumcision of all of the males following that uh, crossing over of the Jordan River, a, a picture of obeying God, whatever the cost, even when it makes us, leaves us vulnerable in order to uh, obey Him. The conquest of Jericho, that just as the walls of Jericho fell when Jericho was attacked on the basis of God's instruction, the Bible teaches that all of the strongholds in our lives, all of the strongholds of addiction or sin or selfishness, they will fall as we just simply obey God's battle plan for these spiritual strongholds in our life, obey His Word, then these strongholds will fall in our life also. Last time we saw the defeat of the children of Israel at the city of Ai, and uh, that 
chapter teaches us in our own Christian lives that no one can be successful in the Christian life who lives a life of where there is secret sin or there is deliberate disobedience to God that characterizes our life. And that Achan brought in his deliberate disobedience to God's word, he brought sin into the camp among God's people. It, in, it brought defeat to them. And in the same way, uh, we cannot progress in the Christian life if we're living a life of willful, deliberate disobedience to the Lord. And one of the nice things about taking the Lord's Supper this evening, the symbols of Jesus' body and of His blood, that an important part of the Lord's Supper, is, as we'll uh, celebrate later, is to remember the Lord, to remember His grace, to remember um, His death, His burial, His resurrection, all that He's done for us, but also to remember His consecration to the will uh, of the Father and, uh, and, and to realize that this time of partaking of communion is a time of allowing the Holy Spirit to search our lives for there any willful disobedience that we have grown comfortable with as Christians that is keeping us defeated, that is keeping us in a stagnated place in our Christian life. We aren't progressing and to turn away from that and uh, move forward in it. And so important lessons. And now we come into chapter 8 following the defeat of the children of Israel in chapter 7 and they addressed that defeat, the cause of that defeat, and that was Achan and his sin and uh, now having addressed that sin and, and uh, repented of it and removed the sin from the camp, now they can move forward. And chapter 8 is a wonderful uh, chapter because it teaches us that God is the God of second chances. And third and fourth, and it's a great encouragement to people like me, and I trust it is to you also. Chapter 8, verse 1, Now the Lord said, how valuable is it to have the Lord speak to us? especially after failure. I said, oh boy, will he talk to me again? <laughs> will I ever hear his voice again? Will he ever, will he think it a waste of time to reveal his will to me again as I've violated it in the past? The Lord speaks now to Joshua once again, and he's going to give Joshua great encouragement. It is such a, a priceless thing to hear the voice of God. We just think about that, where God speaks to our hearts or He speaks to us through the Word or the different ways that He has communicating to us and we realize that's God speaking to me. And what an amazing thing it is that God would speak to us. And then, and then where there is that awe of the fact that He would speak to us, then always there's going to be coupled with that a, a desire to immediately obey what God says to us. So there should always be that awe that God speaks to us and he directs us uh, in this life. One of the things, and especially when you're coming out of the kind of trouble that they're coming out of in chapter 7, but really in any kind of circumstance in our life where everything is just kind of spinning a little bit at the moment because of the difficulty, how valuable it is to hear the voice of the Lord. So often, some of you know firsthand, so often if I'm visiting someone in a hospital or in kind of a counseling session and somebody's, you know, the whole world is just being turned upside down, a very, very difficult time in a person's life. One of the things that I, f I find that the Holy Spirit prompts me to pray very often is just, Lord, would you help them to hear your voice above all of the other voices in this situation? I don't know about you, but I've got voices up here. <laughs> 
I can carry on four conversations up in this dog, and I can think all kinds of things. Paranoia is a terrible thing. Schizophrenia. So you've got all these voices that go on in our heads, all these voices that go on in our hearts, and all the things the doctors are saying, and all the things that the neighbors are saying, the family's saying, all the things that are going on, and we just need to hear God's voice above all other voices, because that begins to put everything else in perspective. So praise the Lord for God's voice. He said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. And so, beautiful, wow, okay. We just had a defeated AI, and God tells him, listen, this isn't going to be your constant portion. We're going to get on with my program now. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of the people of war with you and arise and go up to AI. You remember what they did last time. They went up to AI and said, AI, Shmei. It's just a little old wimpy town compared to Jericho, and we're big experts on conquering cities in the promised land. No need to send a bunch of people, just send two or three thousand. God puts his game plan together, and he says, you go out in full force. We don't go up against the enemy, especially our enemy, the devil, with one-tenth of our forces. We're to go up against him at full strength. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he said, put on the whole armor of God. No, put on some portion of it, and this will be okay. So they send out some small portion. We're going to see the Lord sends out tens of thousands of soldiers just to take little old AI, because that's the way that we have to fight the battle. And so you take all of the men of war with you, arise and go up to AI. And see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. The Lord's now going to give Joshua and the children of Israel a second chance to take Ai. And I'm thankful tonight, as you are, that God is the God of second chances. I don't know what I would do if I did not have that confidence that he is able to take even our failures... And take all of those fit under Romans 8.28 to take even those things when we learn from them and to work them together for good in our lives. And so here he gives them a second chance now to take Ai and he gives Joshua the reassurance that they're going to do it and God's grace and his second chances do what? They make us love him all the more. It doesn't make us say, oh boy, this is the way that God is. He's a softy. I'll just sin every chance I get. The hardest thing in the world is to sin against love and to sin against grace. That's the hardest heart of all. And, and, and God knows it. When God is gracious to us, He knows what it provokes within our hearts. A, a thanksgiving and appreciation. Now we want to obey God and, and to please Him. It makes us love Him all the more. Nothing is a waste in life that we learn something from. In the Christian life, nothing is a waste. Uh, Warren Wearsby quotes... Uh, Uh, Henry Ford as defining a mistake as an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. I like that. So our failures are an opportunity to begin again only more intelligently and more spiritually. They're smarter. They're wiser. They've learned something from this, uh, this defeated AI. And so God says, all right, 
Now we can move forward. And he does the same thing in our lives. And so he gives the promise of, of this victory. He declares further that not only would they take uh, verse 2, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. You'll utterly def defeat them. The one difference between Jericho and Ai is that only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. In, in Jericho, the destruction of the city, everything was to be given to the Lord. That was his. It was the first fruits of the land. Now that something different happens with Ai and beyond, and that is the booty or the loot from the uh, conquest of these cities in the land now belonged as, as a part of the spoils belong to the children of Israel. What it makes us realize is how, how sad the story of Achan is that he stole that wedge of gold and that Babylonian garment and, and, uh, and the silver and all. And, and right around the corner, God was going to say, everything after this is, is yours. Just don't, just don't take this. Just obey me here on this thing. The rest of it, you're going to become wealthy as a people beyond your wildest dreams. And disobedience always robs us of God's blessing. And you just look and say, Achan, man, if you could have just waited two weeks, you could have gone into the Babylonian garment industry. You could open a shop selling gold and silver. And, and yet he, he ripped himself off by, by failing to obey the Lord. So from this point forward, they were going to get to take the spoils and keep it to themselves. And then God gives them the method for the defeat of the city of Ai, he said, you shall lay an ambush for the city behind it. Now remember, Jericho was its own battle plan of marching around the city multiple times and the walls came down. And you would just think, boy, that works pretty good. Let's do that at Ai. And, and, but God doesn't do the same thing every single time the same way, does he? And one of the things that that really forces us to do is to stay really connected with him in prayer. Because he, he, will, he will do a 90 degree out of something or a 180 out of something, and we just think he's going to always do it this way, and the next time he does it so differently. And the only way to know that is to be talking with him about everything. The Bible says to pray, uh, pray about all things and seek him related to that. Because he's going to, instead of this, what he did with Jericho, his device now, his military kind of uh, method that he's going to use against AI is ambush. And so again, we see all the way back in ancient history these, these, these same uh, military tactic, tactics that are used uh, to this day and just effectively for today. And so he gives uh, Joshua the game plan here for how that ambush is to take place. Here's the battle plan. So Joshua arose and he took and all of the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you shall be ready. And then I and all the people who are with me, we're going to approach the city and it will come about that they will come out against us, the people of Ai, just as they, they did it the first. We will flee before them, just like we did the first time. 
For they will come out after us till we have drawn them out of the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore we will, uh, therefore we will flee before them. And then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Now one of the interesting things about this battle plan from God is that God uses the previous defeat of the children of Israel against their enemies. They had gone up and they had uh, tried to fight and take it. They had fled, losing 36 men. And so God, here's God's grace again in their lives. They've learned something from it. God is able to use our mistakes and our failures even against our enemy if we learn something from it. And so he, he, God says, it knows in effect that now the people of Ai, the enemy, they're going to be overly confident, very self-confident that they can defeat you again. We're going to use their self-confidence against them. And we're going, to, we're going to pull them into a trap. And it's beautiful how the Lord, again, can take our shortcomings, even our sins as we repent of them, as we learn from them, to work them together for good. Again, nothing is a waste that we learn something from. I love it when the Lord uses everything, even our mistakes that we learn from, against the devil. One of the things about the devil, I mean, he's no match for God. I mean, God created him. He knows, uh, didn't create him to fall or anything, but created him a tremendous angel and all. But he's a created being. He's not infinite like God is. But the devil, the crazy thing about him is that he always overplays his hand. He's proud. That's what, that was the initial thing that led to his, uh, his sin and, and his fall, was his pride. And he's still characterized by pride. And the Lord knows how to use that against him. And so here's this, uh, they're going to become confident here and overconfident, and God's going to use it against them again. A beautiful picture of God's grace. And it will be that when you have taken the city, that you shall set it on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. So he informs his military forces, this plan comes from God. See, I have commanded you. And Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush. And they stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua, that's where the force of 30,000 went, but Joshua lodged that night among the people. And then Joshua rose early in the morning. He mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. So he begins the frontal attack upon their gate. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. They came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. And so he took about 5,000 men, set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So he's got 30,000 behind the city that are going to be key to the ambush. He realizes that he's uh, got a little bit of a situation where his flank is exposed, so he puts a, a force of 5,000 so that he doesn't get a surprise attack out of Bethel, puts them in place. And when he had set the people, uh, uh, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw this, that the men of the city turned, hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all of his people at the appointed place before the plain. But they did not know that there was an ambush against him 
behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before the men of Ai, uh, and, and they fled by the way of the wilderness. And so all the people who were in Ai, they got excited, we're going to crush them again. We're called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were drawn out of the city. In fact, they were so thoroughly drawn out of the city in their self-confidence and, and pride, they didn't leave a single man in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and they pursued Israel. A very, a very, very bad strategic decision to take all of your forces and and put them in that place. But they wanted to destroy the children of Israel, and so that's that's exactly what uh, what they did. And then the Lord said to Joshua, "Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai." For I give it into your hand. And Joshua then stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. And so those in ambush were, arose quickly out of their place, the 30,000. And they ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand. They entered the city, they took it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked back behind them, and they saw and behold the smoke of the city ascended into heaven. In other words, the thing is, is completely uh, up in flames. That when they uh, saw that, they turned back and, they, and struck down... Uh, hold on a second. I'm already in verse 21. We're not done with verse 20 yet. So... It, when they saw that the smoke ascended to heaven, so they had no power to flee this way or that way, no means of retreat. And the people who had fled to the wilderness of the children of Israel now turned back on the pursuers. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And so they're caught in the, in the crush of these two forces as then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and they struck them down so they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him to Joshua. So he was the lone survivor uh, of this uh, conquest of the city of Ai. And it came to pass that when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them. And when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all of the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. And so it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all of the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the sword until he had utterly destroyed all of the inhabitants of Ai, only the livestock and the spoil of the, uh, that city Israel took as booty for themselves uh, according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded them. And so Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. Uh, it doesn't mean that this was the means of execution. In those days you would be killed typically by stoning, but then a body would be... Uh, hung from some tree or some uh, means of hanging them up as an example, a deterrent uh, to basically communicate to people, don't do what this person did or you'll end up 
home one day yourself. And, and so that was to be the lesson of, of the king of Ai. His, he and the, the city of Ai, their desire to destroy the children of Israel. And so they're made an example, just hung on the tree until evening, as the law said. Then a body was to be removed. And as soon as the sun went down, was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And so we have the conquest of the, the city of Ai. And the children of Israel have to feel at this point, okay, it's good to have that feeling again. This is... This is what victory is supposed to, to feel like. Now, the, at this point in verse 30, the, uh, God does something that, again, as he so often does, uh, it doesn't make any sense in the natural. It, it doesn't, certainly doesn't make any sense militarily. They've just defeated the city of Ai. And so, come on, man, we've got momentum and everybody's got their confidence back and feeling good about things. And so, let's just keep forward taking, taking these uh, next cities. But what the Lord does now is He stops them in their tracks and He's going to take them to a place, Mount Ebal, there in the land, and they're going to to do something that Moses had uh, commanded that they were to do when they entered into the land from Deuteronomy chapter 27, that when they came into the land, they were to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, that they were to offer sacrifices to the Lord, that they were then to read the law of Moses, probably the book of Deuteronomy, out loud in, in the valley between these two mounts, and that, that they would uh, pronounce, uh, read the, the curses that come with disobeying God's word, the blessings that come with obeying God's word, and that they were to build an altar, offer peace offerings, offer um, burnt offerings, and, uh, and all once they got into the land. And so uh, now is the time where God directs them to do that. So they pull back from their military conquest, and they proceed to take a journey 30 miles out of out of the way in order to do this, this great spiritual thing with the Lord. And there's a reason for it, as we'll see in just a moment. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has uh, wielded an iron tool, and they offered on this uh, altar that they built, uh, burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Again, Moses had said, when you go into the land, you should do this. The burnt offering, again, is a, is a, uh, it, it's a consecration offering. The, the unique thing about the burnt offering is that the entire sacrifice was burnt and consumed by fire on the altar. And when a person offered a burnt offering to the Lord, and it was a voluntary offering. It was just a way of a person saying to God, God, you have my whole life. My whole life belongs to you, um, and, 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 I, and it's consecrated to you. You use it however you see fit. 
And it's a picture of what Paul wrote to the Romans. And I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, which is acceptable unto God, and is your reasonable service. And so that's our burnt offering, is to, to regularly be saying, Lord, my life belongs to you. I want it to be holy. You are free to use my life however you see fit. And that's what the burnt offering Communicated. So this was a time where they were stopping and saying, Lord, we belong to you. We exist to bring you glory and accomplish your purposes in this world. The peace offerings, the unique characteristic of that was that an offering would be made to God of, of meat from the, uh, of the animal of the offering. And then the priest would then give a portion of that meat back to the offerer. And so you had a picture of God eating, so to speak, his portion of the meal, the offer eating a portion of the meal, and thus enjoying uh, fellowship and communion with one another as they're partaking from the same uh, sacrifice. And so it was a, it was a, these offerings were a communication on the part of the children of Israel of their uh, consecration, wholehearted commitment to God, and also of their deep appreciation for the fact that God had made a way for them to have a personal relationship uh, with him. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he, uh, Joshua, wrote uh, this, on the stones of uh, a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And so probably they, they took these stones that were just rough stones, built an altar, put some kind of a plaster over it, and then while this plaster was still moist, uh, Joshua wrote the entire book of, of Deuteronomy uh, into that plaster. It's pretty uh, amazing, but that's, that's what he did. And then all of uh, Israel and their elders and the officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the man who was born uh, among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, Half of them were in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all of the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that was written in the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. And so this uh, beautiful uh, commitment of not only offering sacrifices to the Lord, but then having the Word of God read, and then they uh, publicly uh, proclaiming the, their uh, commitment to obey God's Word. Now, the, the interesting thing about the timing of this whole event is that by the time they do this, they've experienced victory in the land, in Jericho, but they've also experienced defeat at AI. So now they have some gnosko, some knowledge that comes by experience. That's not an Italian bean for a salad. Gnosko is Greek for a knowledge that comes by experience. So God says, all right, you've gotten a little taste of what obedience brings into your life, always victory, and you've gotten a little taste of what disobedience brings into your life, and that is uh, defeat and and so now you're uh, kind of uh, 
experienced on both sides of this thing. And so now you really can appreciate the importance of obedience and they make this, uh, this commitment to the Lord at this particular point in, in time. It, it, so it's just like, okay, Lord, I know what defeat tastes like. I don't want to be there anymore. <laughs> and so I commit more than ever now to obey your word and to walk in it. And that's a good thing that comes out of defeat too. The determination is doubled up and say, okay, I've had enough of that. I don't want to do that ever again. Chapter 9. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, when they heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So they're seeing the children of Israel march to the promised land, victory, little setback, victory, and they realize, all right, we're not going to be, we, we better not fight these people one at a time. We better unite together uh, to fight against them. And so these five kings over these uh, small kingdoms that were in the land, they unite together now to fight against uh, the, the, the children of, of Israel here. And one of the beautiful things about it is that uh, it, 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 they unite together to fight against God, fight against the children of Israel and God's plan. Is All they do is they just make it even easier for the children of Israel to defeat them. It's much harder to go from one city to the next city to the next city when you can take on all five of them out in a field out in the open and, uh, and go ahead and defeat them there. So, uh, you know, there's a, a passage in the Bible that uh, talks about the fact that God will make even uh, the ways of the wicked to praise Him. In other words, he, he, they have their plans, they have their ideas that they're going to do to oppose the things of God. And God says, listen, that, none of that scares me. By the time I get done with, with this whole thing, I'm going to make all those things that they meant for evil, I'm going to turn them around against them. And that's exactly what he, he does here in, in this situation. So they realize they've got to do it. These people probably couldn't have uh, gotten together and, and unified or, uh, over a good pizza. Uh, you know, the animosity between one another and the jealousy and the fighting and the history, but they could join together to fight against God's people. And it's funny how uh, Christianity can make strange uh, bedfellows of people. We see it with Pilate and, and Herod in the crucifixion of Jesus. These two people couldn't get along at all in any way, and yet these, th- their wickedness they could come together and agree on uh, condemning Christ. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, uh, they're a little smarter than the average bear, the average uh, Canaanite or Gibeonite. They look at it, and these other five guys say, okay, beat them, bust them, that's our custom. Goo, beat them, bust them, that's our custom. So I graduated from high school. I know all the yells. Um, wasn't on the team, though. I want you to know that. Uh, so, but they look and they say, we're going to come against them and, and hit, them, hit them hard. The Gibeonites look and say, no. If they can take Jericho and they can take Ai, we don't have a chance. So we better come against them with a different device than, than a, a frontal assault on them. And so what they're going to do is they're going to try and save their necks, and they're going to try and defeat the children of Israel through deception. They're not going to come against them, you know, force against force. They say, we've already seen where that leads twice. 
There's no future in it. So let's try some deception against them and see if that can work. And, and so when they heard what, what Joshua and the children of Israel had done, they worked craftily and they went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took some old sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins that were torn and mended and and old and patched sandals on their feet. And you know, picture the Beverly Hillbillies coming into Hollywood there, on the, if you're old enough to remember all that. And they got the old garments on themselves. All the bread that they were carrying for their provision was now dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him, and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. They came 25 miles away. But they made it, made it look like, in terms of their clothes, in terms of their food, and in terms of the, the uh, pitch that they're pitching to, uh, Joshua, they, they try to make it look like, listen, we're not any of these bad people in the land that God's called you to wipe out. We come from way, way, way. You know how long you got to travel for bread to get this moldy? For clothes to wear out like this? I mean, we've come a long way. So this is what they're doing here. And they're saying, listen, make a covenant with us. And in doing so, because Joshua knew God prohibited that they would make a covenant with any of the peoples of the land. It's interesting that the people knew that too. At least the Gibeonites did. And so they said, no, we're not uh, among those people. We come from a long ways away. You can make a covenant with us. Uh, honest engine, tap, tap, no erases. And uh, you're safe with us, okay? And then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. How do we know you come from so far away and you're not uh, from closer? How shall we, can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And, and Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? doesn't sit right with Joshua. He's going to get conned here. I... I I've been conned a few times in my life. And I don't know that I've ever been conned except that I had a hesitation somewhere in the process of the con. And you just look and you go, mm, no, something's not right here. But then they keep talking. We'll see in just a moment here. They keep talking. They, they got, they're good. These people are really good. Uh, con people are very good at what they do. I'm not that good at being an anti-con person. I don't deal with con people all the time. So they're better at conning than I am at recognizing cons on things. Listen, I lost like a Tootsie Roll. So I'm not, I don't lose... I'm, I'm, ha I'm half Scottish. I don't lose a lot even when I get conned. I got two Tootsie Rolls from them back by the time they left. That was the Irish in me and they got the thing going on that and threatened to kill him. But, but here's, the, here's the situation where uh, he, he hesitates, and this is such a great lesson for our Christian lives. He hesitates, it just, it's not sitting right, something's wrong here. He's lost his peace. Colossians 3.15, one of the most important verses for us in, in, our, in, in an area of discernment in our life as Christians. And it says... Let the peace of God rule in your heart. And the word rule there is the word, we would literally translate it umpire. And what does an umpire do? An umpire makes a call, whether someone is safe or whether someone is out. 
And there's the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives through his peace in our lives that tells us whether something is safe or whether something needs to be called out in our lives. And Joshua here, he goes against his peace when he enters into this covenant. Never, ever, ever go against your peace in making a decision. Every time we do, we make a mistake. That's one of the ways that God speaks to us is we lose our peace. Now, it isn't a situation, this is so important, I'm going to go into it just for a little bit. Well, only be four or five hours. But this is so important. It isn't a thing. Sometimes I remember when I first read this as a, as a new Christian, it said, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And the idea was that, um, you know, I would come to forks in the road, decision places in my life, and that as I hit those places, that God would give me greater peace in my life concerning the direction that he wanted me to go, left or go right. But that's not what Paul's really talking about there. The fact of the matter is, is as Christians, we walk in peace. There's just a, a, a peace in our heart there by the Holy Spirit concerning things around. We're obeying God. We're walking with God. Our life is in line with his word. And, and we're, we're enjoying our relationship with the Lord. And so there's just the peace that's in our life. Whenever we hit a situation, we come to a fork in the road, and we look at one fork, and our peace goes. gets crumpled up like a piece of paper and thrown in the garbage. That's one of the ways that God speaks and says, don't go down that fork. I don't give you peace to go down that fork. And he loses his peace now as he's being conned or tempted into making this, this uh, covenant with the Gibeonites, and he's going to, he's going to bust through that peace. He's going to make a terrible decision. And it's a great thing for us to realize in our own lives Every time I have personally gone against my peace, it has always ended up being the wrong decision. It's a great way, one of the great ways that God speaks to us. So he's suspicious here. He doesn't like it, but he keeps the communication going. He should have just said, I don't know who you guys are. I don't know where you come from, and I don't need to know that to do what God is calling me to do. We're just going to go about our business and what you're about. You go do your business God will work any covenant out, but he doesn't do that. He keeps talking to them. Now, these guys are deceivers. Everything they've said is a lie. Now, we, we've got a, a greater than the Gibeonites who try to deceive us, right? The devil, the Bible says, the Bible declares him to be a deceiver. That's one of the names that, that Jesus gave uh, concerning him. And the fact that he is uh, not only a liar, but he is the father of lies. And, and so, in the same way that Joshua is dealing with the physical Gibeonites, there's lessons for us here in our dealing with the temptations that come uh, against us uh, by the devil. So, uh, it, so he keeps the communication up and uh, says, Who are you? Where do you come from? And so they said to him, From a very far country, your servants have come. And here's why we've come. Because of the name of the Lord your God. Got a little God talk. The funny thing about us as Christians, and, and, I, and, and con people know it, if you're dealing with a Christian, throw a little God talk in. They'll drop their guard almost immediately. Flatter their God. Flatter them in their relationship with God. Talk about their God, and you've got them 80% set up now to, to fleece them. And so they, they, these folks, they know what they're doing. So they drop God's name here. 
and, and speak of His name respectfully. For we have heard of His fame and all that He did in Egypt, all that He did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, uh, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Very good. These guys are good. They make mention of God's deliverance of them out of Egypt, the deliverance, their defeat of Sihon and Og on the east side of the Jordan River, which had happened months earlier. And, but they don't mention Jericho or Ai. Because if they truly came from a far country, the latest news that they would have would be concerning Egypt and Sihon and Og. If they said, we've heard what you've done at Jericho and Ai, they say, we just did that. How far away could you have been? So, I mean, these guys got the con all laid out here. And, and there's a defense against the con. That's why I'm, you know, kind of laying the thing out. There's an absolute foolproof defense against getting conned by the devil or anybody else in this. And so these guys are really, really good at what, what they're doing here. And therefore, our elders, we heard about your God. We heard about the defeat of, of, of Egypt and Og and Sihon. And, and so therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey. Go and meet these people and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, so we took it hot right out of the oven for our provision from our houses on the day that we departed to come to you. Come on, come on, they're laying it on. But that's what they're doing. Now look, it's dry and it's moldy. So the whole pitch to look at the physical circumstances and these wineskins which we uh, filled were new and see now they're torn and these are garments and our sandals have become whole, old because of the very long journey. And then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. I like it in the Old Testament. I mean, in, uh, we are in the Old Testament. I like it in the Old King James. The Old King James says, they took stock of their victuals. They decided, they looked and they just, they're going to make their decision on the basis of looking at the physical evidence in front of them in terms of the bread, in terms of the clothing, in terms of the sandals, in terms of this. And, and, and they're going to make the decision based completely upon the pitch that's been given to them and the physical evidence for that pitch. And here's the great failure that they make. And verse 14 is the lesson of this, this whole uh, series of events and, and the deception that, that um, uh, they fell prey to. But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And that's the great failure that they had in, in the situation. And the intimation of this is that if they had simply just asked the Lord, Lord, something seems fishy here. It just doesn't seem to add up. What in the world is going on here? God would have immediately exposed that this was a con that someone was trying uh, to work on them. But they looked at the thing, they took stock of their victuals, they looked at it and just said, there's no need to pray, this is obviously true. I mean, look at all of this. But not everything is as it seems in this fallen world. We can, we can, as Christians, we can look at something from every angle on the physical and be completely fooled. That's how good the devil is. 
That's how good the world is at conning people. It cons people all, makes victims of people all day, every day. It's what they give their life to. But there's a God who sees everything so clearly. He sees it from uh, 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 the spiritual realm. He sees everything that's going on around the whole thing. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And he's eager to share his insights if they would have just asked him for prayer. So in prayer related to what was going on. So again we see in the children of Israel, we see uh, another failure in the area of prayer. It's another case of prayerlessness. They failed to pray and ask the Lord about how they should advance and take AI and their pride and in their confidence. And then here's another thing where th- that comes up and they make a decision and they fail in the area of, of prayer and they don't ask counsel uh, of, of the Lord and uh, they, they get fooled uh, in, in all of it. And uh, so we're just going to operate on the basis of uh, common sense. Anybody could look at this God, no need to talk with you about it. I mean, you see the same bread I see, you see the same sandals I see, you see the same wineskins I see, the same clothes that I see. I mean, all you need is a little common sense. The problem with common sense is not as common <laughs> as is reported. And, and uh, the other thing is that co- even common sense is very easily fooled. I like what Paul wrote when he, speaking in this whole area of spiritual warfare against the devil in, he, in Ephesians chapter 6, he, he finishes um, uh, describing all of the different weapons of our warfare and all of the equipment that makes up our warfare, uh, our, our armor in the, in the battle, and he closes it by emphasizing the importance of prayer, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And I think only God knows how many disastrous decisions are made by God's people because of a failure to just simply pray and run that situation by Him and a failure to seek His wisdom on these situations, even situations, interestingly enough, that we have a sense that something is wrong here. And there's still an absence of, uh, of prayer. And so he teaches us about the importance of prayer in, in this situation. James chapter 1. This is a wonderful uh, verse, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God says, if you don't know what to do in a situation, pray to me. I won't call you a dummy or a knucklehead or prove you or rebuke you for doing it. I won't say anyone with the slightest amount of common sense could tell what you do in that situation. He says, you'll never hear that from me. If you need wisdom, ask me for it, and I will give you that wisdom. And then two verses in the Old Testament in this vein, I probably know more people for whom these are their life verses than any other verses in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then here it is. And lean not on your own understanding. That's what they do here. But in all of your ways, instead of leaning on our own understanding, in all of your ways, acknowledge Him in prayer, and He will direct your paths. And so, again, a very important lesson on the importance of prayer for a victorious Christian life. And so they didn't ask counsel, and so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live and the rulers of the congregation uh, swore to them. And so they made that uh, covenant with them there.
And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors, we've been taken, who dwelt near them. And then the children of Israel journeyed, and they came to their cities on the third day. So the children of Israel are making about eight, eight miles a day uh, on, on all of this. And now their cities were Gibeon, uh, uh, Shepharah, uh, Be'eroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. Uh, and, but the children of Israel did not attack the Gibeonites uh, 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 did, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them uh, by the Lord God of Israel. So they, the children of Israel, when they realized we've been duped in this situation, the rulers said, all right, they deceived us, they duped us, but we gave our word in the name of the Lord that we would enter into a covenant with them. In other words, we, we, if we attack them now and we destroy them, God's reputation is now wrapped up in this. And so, really, to their credit, they honor the commitment that they had made to the Gibeonites. Even though they got fooled, even though they got suckered on, on the thing, they look at it and they say, no, we've given them our word, we can't come down to their level because we're not on the level of the, of the world. And so, to their credit and, and their character, they, they held uh, and, and kept the commitment. The result of, of this prayerlessness among the leaders of the children of Israel was that all of the congregation, the average person in the, in, uh, the, among the children of Israel, they complained against the rulers. And uh, so they might have complained because they didn't get the loot from the cities. If, you're kind of, if you have like a, a jaded uh, view of mankind... You'll look at this and say, yeah, they wanted to wipe them out and get the loot, and they didn't get the loot. That's why they're all upset. Well, it could be uh, because they've, they, it, they've been cost some of the spoil. I think that uh, one of the reasons they complained was the obvious prayerlessness of their leaders. And, and then the other reason was that, that I mean, they might have looked at things here and, and said, this is so unnecessary for us to be in this situation again, that the absence of uh, of of prayer here. I do think that leaders, uh, whether it's in a home or, or however God has us leading, certainly within a church, I think there's um, prayer is so important because God's people will overlook a certain amount of bad decision making. And uh, because they don't expect us to be God or to be perfect or anything like that. But I think a leader has to realize that people do have a tolerance uh, limit related to this. And if they see consistently uh, defeat coming in among their church or among God's people or in the situations because they're seeing a consistent failure, bad decision-making on the part of leaders, consistently a failure of prayer, that they, they will become intolerant of that. And I've always appreciated in this passage, it's the strong, strong exhortation to leaders within the body of Christ, the importance of, of prayer and being led by the Lord in, in our decision-making. And then all the rulers said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and now therefore we may not touch them. It appears that maybe the children of Israel were complaining and saying, hey, listen, they fooled us, they lied to us, they duped us, they deceived us. We got every right to whoop them. And uh, 
Cooler heads prevail and they say, no, we made a covenant with them, we can't touch them, and this we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And so he says, we won't wipe them out and, uh, because of the covenant we made. This was the right thing to do, and one of the reasons we know that it was the right thing to do, to stick with their word, even though they have, it's going to cost them a little bit to do that. Later on, when King Saul rises up, the first king of Israel, he attempts to destroy the Gibeonites to wipe them out. And the Lord is very displeased with that, uh, that Saul did. And he threatens to bring judgment upon the children of Israel as a result of it. And so what they're doing here is the right thing. And the rulers said to them, to the people of, of Gibeon, let them live but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all of the congregation as the rulers had promised them. So we're going to let them live, but they're going to become our servants, become our slaves, and do the menial tasks uh, 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 for us in, in making life better for us. And then Joshua called them together after they had kind of agreed to deal with it this way, spoke to them saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us. And now therefore you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Now this is interesting. So he informs them, we're going to make you into servants. You're going to cut our wood, and you're going to go to the well and get water and bring it to our houses. That's what your portion is going to be now. But as he speaks to them there in verse 23, he speaks of using them related to the service of the house of the Lord at the tabernacle and at the temple. So it's what Joshua does here is they're pagan people from this land that God had called them to be wiped out. So there's the danger that they're going to be, bring a uh, wickedness and idolatry and pagan influence among God's people. So Joshua says, here's what we'll do. We will keep them busy about taking and cutting wood and gathering water for the tabernacle. In other words, we're going to keep them busy serving in this way as close to the temple as we can. As close to the tabernacle as we can so that we become an influence upon them for good and they will not become an influence against us for evil. And the interesting thing, again, it's God's grace. God is so gracious, Old Testament, New Testament. The interesting thing is, is that the Gibeonites never in the history of the children of Israel ever even attempted to, let alone became successful in, drawing the children of Israel away from uh, the, the worship of the Lord and into idolatry. In other words, God just overwhelmed us with His grace and, and covered uh, the mistake that they had um, made there. And so they answered Joshua and they said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded His servant Moses to give you all of the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and we have done this thing. This is why you, want, you asked why we deceived you? Because we knew you had orders to wipe everybody out. And, and so you, you, you want our response now to the fact that we're now going to become your slaves? Here it is, verse 25. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as seems good and right to do to us. In other words, at least we're alive. <laughs> no complaints with being a servant. 
at least were alive. And that was their response. And so he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children. Uh, so he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them water cutters and water, wood cutters and water, water cutting. That's hard. That's tough. Yep. That's a tough one. That's another miracle we almost had right here in verse 27. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place where he would choose even to this day. And so it is a warning for us as we look and say, uh, wanting to pull lessons out of uh, uh, chapter 10 here. The warning really, uh, chapter 10, related to our lives is a warning against um, un ungodly alliances that have the potential to uh, draw us into compromise or disobedience with the Lord. And that's, that's what the, the devil was trying to do behind this whole big situation. The devil is, is a firm believer in, if you can't beat them, join them. So, you know how he works in your life to attack you, and sometimes he attacks with such force... I mean, it's obvious that it's him. This is spiritual warfare. Wow! He just tries to blindside you. And uh, that's horrible in its own way, spiritual warfare of that kind. But it's usually not the most dangerous spiritual warfare that we face. The most dangerous spiritual warfare that we face is when the devil comes with subtlety, when he comes with a desire to deceive, and he comes and look at my bags and my water things and my sandals and the whole, and he looks harmless and it looks like what could be the problem with aligning with these people and having a covenant with in this situation, and I mean, how much harm could they do to us? And all. That's where he gets very, very dangerous. And so we have to be careful in our lives. Relationships, who we choose to align ourselves with in our Christian life, determines for many of us how, how rich we're going to become spiritually, how many of God's promises we're going to possess in the New Testament. And so the Bible tells us to be very careful about who we make our friends, who we make our influencers in our lives, and, and that we are not to align our, allow ungodly alliances into our lives because even if God, even here where God pours grace out on this situation, it complicates the life for the children of Israel. This is a stain on Joshua's reputation. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to, I don't want to beat people up in the Bible either. But this is a failure on his part. And he didn't fail very often, but this was one of them. And so often we can allow, allow the devil to introduce relationships into our life that then are an influence for us to compromise God's Word, and it always ends up being a stain to our testimony. And so tonight, as we get ready to partake of communion, maybe some relationship or relationships have been introduced into our life that we look at the Word of God and God says, that person has no business being in your life. You are not being an influence for godliness toward them. They are being an influence for ungodliness toward you. And it's a time for us to say, okay, I turn away from that. It's going to mess up my life. It's going to complicate my life. And it's going to make my life less than what God wants it to be. So beautiful lessons found uh, in these, these two chapters. So tonight we want to partake of the Lord's Supper this evening. And